um, reflecting on what it means to know God, um, the fact that He revealed Himself through Christ. And in term two, we're going to find our way through to uh, the next vision movement that we have outside. We've got those four pictures on the wall that is all about finding freedom in Christ. What does it mean for us to actually find our freedom, to be freed, to live free lives in Christ? And I just want to give a bit of a disclaimer that it is so important to discover your freedom because your freedom actually leads to a new discovery of purpose. So many people get hijacked in their spiritual journey because um, their own freedom, their own sense of freedom hijacks any momentum. It sabotages that, their sense of, of any progression. And so important for us as Christians to find out what freedom actually looks like in Christ because that releases a whole new sense of purpose. And, and we're looking forward to that. But Grace Files is, is just an attempt to start considering the reality that the truth, the stories of grace is out there. Um, the story of how God connects and how God transforms people. Now when it comes to our discovery of God, coming to a place that, that we discover who God is, it's, it's an incredible moment, that first time that you realize that there's a living God that actually loves you. It's a beautiful moment. And it excites us, it, it, it opens up a whole new world of possibilities. God loves me, and, and what does that actually mean? But somewhere in that journey, there's a bit of the love drug that wears off. <laughs> that all this excitement peaks, and then suddenly we fall back into the monotonous hamster wheel of just living almost the same kind of life. And, 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 and we struggle with the reality of, how, how was it that I was so excited when I encountered God, and suddenly, this whole relationship, this journey with God, this encounter with Christ almost seems like work. And it's in this space that I realize that, that well, God wants to change a few things in me. And change is, is a word that I think is synonymous with the Christian faith, that in our journey, there'll be constant moments of change. But have you ever thought about this? What does God actually want to change in you? Have you actually had a moment where you thought about that? Because it's easy to grapple with the reality of God is changing me, but what is He actually changing? Because we know something needs a shift. We don't want to stay passive. We don't want to live the typical hamster wheel Christianity. So we know something is wrong. Something needs to change, but what? And we're unsure about what that what is. What actually needs to change in our life? And it's in this process of just grappling with what needs to change, that we compare ourselves with others and we look at people around us or people in other parts of the world and we think, geez, I've actually got it pretty good, that I'm not that bad, I'm not the best, um, there's people uh, that are better than me, there's people that are worse than me, and it sort of puts us in a space where, where comfort and, and just the whole um, stagnation becomes a real option. And the longer we sit there, the more we become aware that something in me is shouting, almost crying out for a, hey, there's more. There has to be more. And it's not just the more externally. There's that experience of finding God in me. And in the realization of there's more, there's also the grappling with, Jeez, I know God. I know He loves me. But why am I still struggling with my worry, my depression, my anger, my perversion, my whatever 
sits in that box. Why? If I encountered God, why is all of this still in me? And I want to say responding to this is difficult. When we hear the word change, we think it should be so easy. And we know the gospel promotes it. When you read the Bible, the Bible is obvious about the fact that people need to change. But when we look at ourselves, and if we look at people around us, it sometimes feels that change doesn't happen that often. And that's an uncomfortable idea to grapple with. And, and in, in all of that, this discomfort of realizing that geez, change is difficult, actually finding ways to discover the freedom that releases me from the burden and the bondage and the whatever, it brings us to a place that, that someone actually termed a phrase called learned helplessness. That we come to a place that because we are stuck in certain experiences for so long, we actually come to a place that that experience conditions us, it teaches us that that is all there is to life. And we become taught by our helplessness. Someone said that learned helplessness occurs when someone believes that they are stuck in a negative experience that they cannot escape. Eventually, they will stop trying to avoid the negative experience and behave as if they are utterly helpless and change is impossible. Even when opportunities to escape are, pre are presented, the learned helplessness will pre prevent any action. That there's people that have actually become so conditioned by their helplessness that helplessness leads to hopelessness. Hopelessness to a sense of powerlessness, and powerlessness leads to passivity and stagnation. I reckon that's probably one of our biggest fears. What if this is all there is? Then if you struggle with it. <laughs> but that's the stuff when I spend time with God, that's the questions that I grapple with. God, I know there's more. Help me to, be, to, to carry within me a holy discontent. To never settle that this is it. But to always have a part of me crying, shouting, hoping, believing, whatever, for the more that's available in you. And help me that that stays in sync with your spirit. <laughs> that I will never rush it. But that I would be drawn into the more of what's available in Christ. See, it's in this notion of learned helplessness that, that I think God presented His Son to humanity, where humanity struggled with learned helplessness. For approximately 6,000 years, they grappled with how do we get rid of the sin issue and our brokenness. And it's in that moment that Christ was introduced. Jesus was introduced. And, and in the introduction of Christ, we discover a term called grace, something that isn't just a gift that is given, it's a person that has come. I want to ask you to read with me out of John 1 verse 14 to 18. It says in the Phillips translation, So the word of God became a human being. Just think about that for a moment. The word of God became a human being. Christ became the expression of God's word. The word of God became a human being and lived amongst us. We saw his splendor. The splendor of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. 
So in the expression of what Christ brought, in Christ, what did, what did we discover? We discovered grace and truth. And it was about him that John stood up and testified, exclaiming, exclaiming, Here is the one that I was speaking about when I said that although he would come after me, he would always be in front of me. Now there's a real practical application to this. John at that moment is exclaiming that Christ was before all time. If you read John 1.1, it actually says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John is actually referencing the fact that before he was born, Christ was. That one who comes after, one who would be born as a baby after me, actually existed before me. Massive statement. Um, and he says, For he existed before I was born. Indeed, every one of us shared in his riches. There is a grace in our lives because of his grace. For while the law was given by Moses, grace, that is love and truth, came through Jesus Christ. Very important distinction that John makes here. He says the law, that list of rules that sort of defined our sinfulness, but also defined God's expectation for our lives was given through Moses. But grace and truth came embodied in the person, Jesus Christ. So when we think about Jesus, we can't see the list of rules. We see grace and truth. The mistake that many people so often make is they think that the truth sits on the side of the law. That it is true that we are sinners. It is true that we, are, that we fail in terms of our ability to please God. What John is saying is that truth sits on the side of Grace, that grace becomes the truth of your life, that whatever grace communicates over your life is true about you. He continues, he said, it is true that no one has ever seen God at any time, yet the divine and only Son who lives in the closest intimacy with the Father has made Him known. So Jesus came presenting grace and truth. But Jesus also showed us who God was. He made God known. So if we take that, what do we, what do we discover about God? God equals grace and truth. And part of this series is trying to, to unpack what that actually means, because at the very core of the Bible sits the story of grace. How grace became the truth of our lives. See, grace is the opposite of karma. Any one of you ever experienced karma? What is karma? It's getting what you deserve. You know, the person that you don't like at school or the office, if something bad happens to them, it's almost, we, we enjoy that moment. That's karma. <laughs> when it happens to you, that's so unfair. <laughs> but grace is the opposite of karma. Grace is... Discovering, it's receiving what you didn't deserve on your own. Now, I want to say something about that. Um, sometimes we read into the notion of uh, we didn't deserve it, deserve it as if we are weak, as if we are not deserving 
That's not what it means. It means you couldn't earn it. You didn't deserve it through what you tried. But you'll see tonight that who you are actually deserves grace. That's part of God's big story over our lives. So we didn't deserve it through what we tried to achieve, but you definitely deserve grace by way of who you are. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, Paul comes, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. So by God's grace, I am what I am. It's probably the biggest statement of identity. That who I am has been communicated by God's grace. I've been constructed, I've been formed, I've been put together by grace. And my God, I will make sure that at no point ever in my life will I allow God's grace to have no effect on my life. Grace is powerful, it is effective, it's incredible. So there's a natural tension when we consider grace and its influence on our lives. There's the one side where grace communicates the fact that we are accepted just as we are. There's another side where encountering Christ will always lead to change. There's two sides of grace. That God loves you, accepts you, and embraces you just as you are. But at the same time, His acceptance, His love, His favor on you will always lead to an encounter that brings change. And if at any point we emphasize one at the expense of the other, we're in danger. If we come to people saying, oh, God, lo- God loves you just as you are, and we leave it, we're lying. Because grace brings change. If we go to people and we want to emphasize the fact that you've got to change, you've got to move, you've got to do this, and we don't include them in the acceptance, in God's favor, we're also lying. Grace has this incredible tension that it's all about being um, accepted as we are, but in this acceptance... Change occurs um, in that space. And tonight I want to use a story out of the Bible, um, a person called Zacchaeus, uh, an interesting character. I don't know if you've ever felt excluded in your life, felt like an outsider. Uh, I was um, put in school a year too early. My parents couldn't keep up with me at home, which was okay. I made the best friends. But one thing happened every year while I was at school. Every time all my friends were asked to uh, uh, try out for the sports teams, I was asked to go and try out for the younger team. And I never had the opportunity to play sports with my age group. Right throughout school, that one decision of my parents, great decision, formed me in, in, in a lot of good, good ways, actually triggered an experience that every year, athletics, rugby, cricket, tennis... When the year group teams were chosen, I had to go to a year group younger than me and I had to play sports with friends and, and, and a squad that weren't part of my social circle. And it was odd, that experience of being left out, being an outsider. Zacchaeus was an outsider and he wanted to attract someone's attention. I don't know if you've ever tried that, but I, re- I remember the first time that I um, wanted to catch Melissa's attention. We had a bit of a uh, responsibility of uh, dropping letters for businesses to um, earn some money for a youth camp that we were doing. 
And uh, uh, I strategically, as youth pastor, asked Melise to be my navigator. Um, great wisdom in that. Um, realized that Melise wasn't any good at reading maps. Um, so great conversations. But at one point, I had the option of, of, of parking on this side of the road um, or parking on that side. The business where we had to drop the letter was on that side. And I intentionally, cho- intentionally chose to park on this side because there was a moment that I planned that I would take her hand as we walked across a very busy street because I didn't have the guts to say, hey, I like you. Um, so planned the moment, and as it happened, I just took her hand and just walked, and as we got over the street, I just kept on holding her hand, and she didn't let go. And that was the first conversation about, hmm, <laughs> I think we like each other um, in that space. The rest is history, and I can't fill you in on that detail, but uh, managed to attract her attention that day. Um, Zacchaeus was all about that. Zacchaeus, the Bible tells us in Luke 19 verse 1, that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So just think, he wasn't just a tax collector, he was one of the chief tax collectors. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed into a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Now, a few things um, about Zacchaeus, and I don't want to labor the point too long, but because he was a tax collector, he was excluded from the Jewish people. They hated him. They actually said that tax collectors were worse than pigs. And if you have a, Jew- Sorry, a Jewish friend, you know that they don't like pigs at all. Uh, they have a deep dislike for them. Because the tax collectors were barbarians appointed by the Roman Empire, to legally and sometimes illegally obtain taxes for their own wealth and for the wealth of the Roman Empire. So took money from the um, oppressed people and gave them to the force dominating them. And they used what they called barbarians. Now barbarians was just a word saying that the the unshaved ones. um, Because the Greeks and the Romans had this very clean-cut culture that they they were the first ones to to invent the... uh, uh, what, it, what it means to, to be shaved. And, and everyone outside of the realm didn't have that technology, so they grew beards. So barbarian was a bearded one. If you're unsure, just look at Greg. He is a barbarian. Uh, <laughs> but because, because Zacchaeus was a tax collector, he didn't attempt to get into the crowd. So the reason why he stood on the side and couldn't see through was short but he wasn't welcomed in. in. They say a sycamore tree um, was a tree that there was actually rules about where it was allowed to be planted. So it isn't a tree right next to the road where, where Jesus walked. It was quite a way off. And the fruit of the sycamore tree would always give off um, whatever it contained, and it would stain your clothes. Zacchaeus was a wealthy man, so he climbed into that tree with his clothes, and he knew it would stain him, but he wanted to see Jesus. So excluded, they see him as less than a pig. His own people hate him, and he wants to see Jesus. Luke 19 verse 5 continues. He says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Now, you could think what he would think at that point of just what is going to happen. A Jewish rabbi identifying him in the tree suddenly standing there saying, come down immediately. This, in the best scenario, is not going to play out well 
for Zacchaeus. Jesus looks at him, says, come down immediately, and then shocks the whole world. Says, I must stay at your house today. A Jewish rabbi redefining grace towards someone that was seen as less than a pig. Looking at Zacchaeus, saying that society, tradition, the rules, your own choices has excluded you, has isolated you, has put you in a place that you probably feel you're the worst person in the world. And suddenly Jesus, the one, comes, stands below a tree and says, come down because tonight I'm going to stay at your house. So he came down and at once welcomed him gladly. So that's a massive surprise factor. No one would have, would have expected that. And that's a part of the grace files when we read the Bible, how Jesus had the ability to surprise people with the way that he extended grace. I want to say that our narrow definition of grace means that we are friendly and kind and good to the people that we think who deserves to be in. But Jesus had the capacity to just break the box in terms of what grace looks like. And he said, I'm welcoming the people that you have defined as unwelcome in my books. In verse 7 to 9, he said, all the people saw this and began to mutter. I'm not even sure what mutter looks like, uh, but I think I've seen it on people's faces before. That's an old notion that we think we know better. We think, Jesus, that what you're doing at the moment is shocking, and we would like to help you with some wisdom, because that's not on. So he's, they were saying he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Imagine that. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 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 here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Remember what we said about grace? Grace is unconditional acceptance. That Jesus comes to Zacchaeus, says to Zacchaeus, come down, I'm coming to your house, I'm going to stay at your place. There was no requirements, unconditional acceptance. But guess what happens to Zacchaeus? At the moment where Christ embraces, invites, includes him, there's a shift and an immediate change in Zacchaeus' life. Where the discovery of Christ and the discovery of the grace extended from Christ to Zacchaeus brought Zacchaeus to a place that he immediately repented, saying, hey, I've cheated people. I've done bad things. The Roman law required that if you were caught out cheating as a tax collector, that you had to pay back 20%. Zacchaeus comes and he says, from now on, or anyone that I cheated, I will pay back four times the amount that I stole from them. An incredible discovery in that moment that grace is all about being invited, accepted, included, but it immediately triggers a moment and a process of change in your life. So verse 9, Jesus comes and makes a statement that I promise you um, people would have wanted to, to stone him. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. That word salvation is uh, the word satirion, which means to keep safe, to keep, um, to keep protected, to rescue from danger or destruction. 
So Jesus is saying, in this moment, grace to you equals the fact that you are being saved, you are being rescued from danger and destruction. That word also means to save from suffering, like suffering from disease, to make well, to heal, and to restore to health. That when Jesus said, today salvation has come to your house, he says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to save you from what is destroying you. But I'm not just going to take you out of the bad stuff. I am going to dis- I'm going to save you. I'm going to heal you from what is destroying you internally. I'm going to bring healing to who you are. Interesting in that moment that we discover <laughs> that the lost, as grace has two sides, that the lost always has two sides. The first side of the lost is people stuck in some sense of overt wrongdoing. We call it sin. And that's the easy definition. Then there's the other squad stuck in an overt sense of right living, where rules define the essence of who we are, the Pharisees. And that in Jesus, he helps us define that people stuck in sin and people stuck in religion are just as lost. That the discovery of grace helps us understand that your failures don't disqualify you and your successes don't qualify you. The discovery of Jesus does. And it's in this moment that I, when reading this, I ask myself the question, so, so why does God have, have such an issue with us? Why does he go to such an extent? Why does he do the typical Zacchaeus thing? Why did he send his son to die on a cross, to die a brutal death, because I'm convinced that it's in the discovery of that answer that it actually leads us to a new dimension of welcoming grace into our lives. And there's a part of that that I believe that grace actually points us to the logic of God's love towards our life. What was it that caused God to deliver us? Listen to what Psalm 8 says David comes and he says I look up to your macro skies dark and enormous your handmade sky jewelry moon and stars mounted in their settings then I look at my micro self and I wonder why do you bother with us why do you take a second look our way David had that same that same question That if I look at the expense, if I look at everything that's made, why is it, God, that you are investing the best of who you are in us? The Revised Version says, What are human beings that you are so mindful of them? That word mindful literally means, Why do you fill your mind with us? Why do you have us on your screensaver, God? That's his question. But then he gives the answer. He says, you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with your glory and your honor. You created them a little lower than what? God. The logic of God's love is that God understands our true Value. 
He created us a little lower than God. He crowned us with His glory and honor. That explains the price that God was prepared to pay um, for our, our ransom. See, God saw in us enough of Himself. Just think about that for a moment. We are so used to thinking of ourselves and thinking of people as bad sinners, of almost worthless people. But from the outset, Genesis 1.27, the Bible is clear about the fact that we were created in the image and likeness of God. From the outset, from the creation moment, God established our worth as like Him. And that's further just attested by the fact that when we look at the price that God paid for us, the price determined our value. Just look at what 1 Peter 1 verse 18 and 19 says. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious Blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. What price did God pay for your redemption? He paid Christ. When he looked at humanity, he didn't see something worthless, something broken, something lost. When he looked at humanity, he saw something that was created in his image and in his likeness. And when he had the opportunity to redeem that, he didn't take the option of saying, I'll give you all the wealth and all the riches and all this. He said, you are worth so much to me that I will pay my son. That the value of Christ determined the value of humanity. And it's in that moment that we realize that at any given moment when we deal with other human beings as anything less than that, we are distorting God's image in their lives. That God has this incredible conviction that you were created in His image and in His likeness. That you carry the DNA of God. So our identity is secure in God's opinion. That God is convinced about who we are. Sometimes we struggle. And because we struggle, we allow certain things to take shape and to take place in our lives that brings destruction. But I think it's important tonight to understand that as Jesus walked to Zacchaeus and treated Zacchaeus with value, that's the same thing that God does with us. Because he's convinced about who and what we are. So if God's opinion is secure, God's not going to move away from that. We need to align our opinion. Ephesians actually helps us understand just where we are stuck. It says that for you were once darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of the light. There was a point in time where you felt that your whole being was defined by darkness. You discovered God, and in that discovery, you realized who you actually are and who you actually were. And it's in that moment of discovery that you realize that you are worth what God says and what God speaks um, about your life. And it's in this moment that we, that we grapple with the fact that for so long it's been easy to identify with darkness being our reference. And if darkness is our reference, then it's so easy to say, I'm bad. 
Or on the other side, we think that dust is my reference. And if dust becomes my reference, it's easy to say that I'm nothing. But the reality of the grace message brings us to a point that we need to consider that grace communicates true value. And if you are valuable, then that means you are responsible. And I think sometimes it's easier to walk off saying it's much safer for me to identify as darkness or as dust. But somewhere in life, if you continue down that pathway, it burns you. And that's why God sent His Son into the world to say that I want to lift you out of any reference of dust and any reference of darkness. I want to bring you to a place that you will start living from the premise of my opinion over your life. You know what the word opinion is in Greek? It's the word doxa, meaning glory. That when Jesus prays in John 17 saying that, God, I pray that you would give them the same glory that you've given me. Jesus is actually saying, God, I want to pray that they would live in the same opinion, the same value estimation that you have of me, that they would live in that same reference of opinion. That if you want to reduce the understanding of opinion, the vine says it's primarily an estimation and the honor resulting from that estimation or opinion. That grace communicates to us that we are valuable. And even though you've had moments in darkness where you've been exposed to things that could be destructive, or even though you've been stuck in the hamster wheel of dust, feeling that you're insignificant, you're nothing, God speaks a word of your life, the same word that he spoke over Zacchaeus' life, saying, today, salvation has come to your house. You are a son of Abraham. Today, I'm rescuing you from destruction. Today, I'm bringing healing to your life. Today, I'm including you in a reference because we are all sons and daughters of Abraham that every promise that was given in Christ becomes true for us. So the big question, if I can get there, I'll just read it off this. <clears throat> the next slide, please. Thanks. I want to ask you to take a moment to think about this. That question that I think we want to escape. Think about this question. What is God bringing you out of in this moment? Just for a moment, just consider uh, where we started off. Asking the question, thinking about change, thinking about the things that has to change if you thought about your own life, what are the things? <laughs> Promise you that's not me. What are the things that God wants you bring that God wants you bring you out of now? Some of you are still stuck in darkness in a reference of darkness. 
And you need to trust God. You need to welcome the fact that God wants to save you. He wants to rescue you out of that. 